We're continuing our study in the Gospel of John. And today, my text is simple and really short. Chapter 5, verses 25 through 29 only. And if you ask me, and, and as you heard scripture reading, our moderator, Jay, just read, and you're looking for something relevant in your life. Can you help me do my parenting better? Uh, does Word of God speak about my finance or my marriage or how I deal with my midlife? All those things. But in it, if you really think about it, there are two different needs that we have. And you, we deal with that our teenagers you know, it sons all the time. The one is a felt knees, and the other one is true knees. Um, the relationship between felt knees and true knees is a very intriguing, because not all felt knees are true knees. For example, you have a need, felt need for chocolate. <coughs> what is that really true need? In the middle of the night, you feel like a, you know, Hagen does ice cream. Might not be true need. And then true need is not necessarily you feel the need. The need uh, that you have as a father, as a mother, to continually guide your children in the right path. That need is sometimes not there because sometimes the kids are, you know, annoying. Sometimes you, we lose temper. Sometimes we feel like uh, we, we had it. But the true need is really true need. And today, there is no deeper true need that we have. This passage speaks on that not only true need for our lifetime, for eternity. Um, as I mentioned last, a uh, couple of Sundays ago, chapter 5 of John's Gospel uh, begins another turn. The early days of uh, Jesus' ministry is centered around Galilee, and it was a, much of a kind of calm beginning that Jesus kind of revealed his messiahship. And then the witness of John the Baptist about him as well. But ch beginning chapter 5, conflict is building up. Opposition and rejection is building up. Persecution is there. And it, it's actually what Jesus is creating, prompting, because he uh, would not only do certain things on the Sabbath to create this controversy, but and yet his response is tremendously offensive to the religious leaders back then. So in uh, chapter 5, the beginning instant as Bethsaida, pool of Bethsaida healing, and the rest of the long discourse, the first long discourse of Jesus is extraordinary, out of this world, unique. 
So it's all connected. So in that regard, I think we need to look at the backdrop of it. The first in your outline, you will see that Jesus healed the paralytic of 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. For 38 years, this person was paralyzed and lying on the mat and waiting for this pool to stir up. The first one goes in, gets healed, and nobody's helping him. And Jesus, just simple words of get up, take up your bed, and walk. He was healed. But second thing that created was that in, in Jewish uh, the religious Jews, instead of getting marveled at the miracle healing, they were so upset and obsessed by the fact that somebody asked him, commanded him to take, take the bed and walk on Sabbath day. Ridiculous from our point of view. But even in terms of you are devoted Jews and really uh, wanting to keep the Sabbath law. This isn't written in the Old Testament. This is a man-made tradition that they created. So in other words, in the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy or in the elsewhere, it was clear that normal daily work, labor that you used to do sees on the Sabbath, the seventh day. For the purpose of the two things, that you rest, by resting you acknowledge the creator and sustainer of your life, even when you are sleeping and you are not doing anything on the Sabbath day, God provides everything. The rest are sure. The second thing is, keep it holy. Remember God, your God, and acknowledge your creator. There is no such a thing when you walk with the mat that is considered a violation. They created this how to not to violate Sabbath law, man-made stuff. And Jesus knew the Sabbath was for the men, not to harm or make our, our lives miserable. Think with me, if you're Jesus, when they had that kind of objection, wouldn't you want to reveal the truth? The truth about Sabbath. And let me tell you, guys, the right interpretation of that Sabbath law, law is this. So you got it wrong. And this is what God-pleasing thing to do. Instead of doing that, answering the Jews' hostile objection and opposition, Jesus gave not arguments, not the arguments for the right interpretation of the law, but radical truth claims about himself. And this truth claim took this conflict to the next level. Because these religious Jews 
This was not only offensive, it's a blasphemy. Basically, Jesus was claiming this. Verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 19, for whatever the father does, but the son does likewise. Verse 21, for as the father raises the dead, gives them and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Verse 22 and 23. For the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Do you see where this is going? Jesus is not merely having argument about Sabbath. Of course, Sabbath is created for purpose, and the person who is healed, God is pleased. We could rationally understand all that. Jesus wanted to bring who he is, reveal his true identity, identity in a way that he has never done before. So today, we're going to do two things. One is um, reviewing last Sunday's message, Pastor Einstein, our youth pastor Einstein uh, preached on that. And I want to recap briefly on that and then fi- find those two other connected points in verses four, 25 to 29. The whole thing is called for truth claims, radical truth, truth claims of Jesus about himself. And should, should I actually say it this way? For exclusive truth claims about himself. The whole book of John, the Gospel of John, the purpose is uh, John 20. 31, once again, he has written this gospel so that people believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ, that we might have eternal life in him. The question about, the lingering question always going on, whatever the chapter we're studying, is who is this man? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? So look at your Bible in verse 19 to 21, uh, 20. Truth claim number one, it is a review. It's simply, let's summarize it this way. Jesus is equal with God. He claimed to be equal with God. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son cannot do Nothing of his own, own accord, but only the, what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these, 
will he show him so that you you may marvel? Whenever you see in the gospel, truly, truly, I say to you, that Jesus is prefacing this as, this is so important, you need to pay attention. And in, in, uh, in you know, Jesus' language, and he's saying, this, this is the word, Amen, Amen. And this is not only so true, but it's so true that you need to pay attention. What, what is so important in this context? And Jesus is saying two things. His unique and intimate relationship to God. My relationship with God is I call him my father. He's my own father and he loves me. And whatever I do has come from him. And I cannot do anything apart from him. This is a very unique relationship that Jesus is doing. In a way that he is saying, I'm equal with God. And that's why it was so offensive to the, to, to the religious Jew, Jews. But to the modern people, we need to pay attention to this. The nuance is a little closer. In other words, um, if I'm saying I'm equal to God, and you're saying, oh, yeah, you're saying you're God. So in other words, okay, here's a true God, here's Another God. Okay, I, I claim to be true God again. No, Jesus is saying, no, actually, God the Father and God the Son shares the same essence together, the Trinity of God. But equal doesn't mean that I'm a separate from Him, but I have this unique relationship, the Trinitarian relationship. For example, Um, some of you guys might laugh at me, but I've grown to love music. My my pathway to love music is singing a cappella, classical songs, including opera. And then if you sing... are you saying you could really sing a cappella, opera songs? Yes, I used to sing. But I have an opera singer friend who is a conductor and who's on the opera, the real theater opera. Yeah, I am an equal, I used to be equal member of that a cappella group. He's so much better than me. He's a professional. I'm a fake. I'm wannabe. I acclaim. But he's another man. Just like me. You see that? God, the Father, is not necessarily separate, but shares the unique relationship with God. And the unique thing about it is this. Unless he tells me, reveals what his will is, I cannot do. That relational, the equality and subordinate relationship with God, submission, voluntary, mutual 
admiration and adoration and submission to the, to the Father. And the Holy Spirit it has the relationship with Christ that way. Holy Spirit shows up. He always lifts up the name of Jesus, not in, instead of him. But Holy Spirit is equal, the third person of God, the Trinity. Equal with God the Father and God the Son. So claiming his equality in two ways. Number one, his unique, intimate relationship to God. Number two, sharing exclusive divine prerogatives as the Son. Only things that God can do, he shares that divine prerogative. So such, such is the case that as the Father raises the dead, the Son gives new life to the spiritually dead. This will become much more clear. But the whole thing is, is Jesus is revealing. Do you feel offensive? Do you think I'm say, claiming the equality with God? Let me tell you how equal I am with the Father. And the more he makes it clear, the more they had a fork, they see the fork of the road in, in their way. Either he is claimed to be who he is, or he's a lunatic or, or liar. In the same way we are at the fork of the road. We would like to paint a picture, typically the artists do, when they do quick image, so, you know, when, they, when you're in Disneyland or in, you know, the artist was you know, go ahead and sit down and caricature of yourself. So everybody can see that. Oh, this is so you. But then it's a kind of cartoonish caricature of that. In this day and age, even Christian churches, there are so many caricatures of Jesus that Jesus is nice, gentle teacher, but Jesus is claiming these incredible things. Number two, claim. This is also in a, the review. Verses 1, 21 through 24, Jesus gives new life to sinners. The sinners need to be defined as the, the spiritually dead. Revive the uh, resurrect the spiritually dead, the spirit that was deadened on the present day. Jesus gives new life to sinners on the present day. Verse 21, For as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Truly, truly, I say to you, there's another second one, Truly, truly, you better attention, pay attention. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Let me read it again. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and he does not come into judgment 
but has already passed from death to life because of Jesus' power, because Jesus' grace, not on our uh, merit or works. In his unique relationship to God and his shared divine prerogatives, Jesus has authority to give life to the spiritually dead. Because John 1, 4 started that way. In him was life. In Christ. He was with God and he was God and in him was life. First letter of John. Same John, the apostle, wrote to the letters 5, 11, and 12. And the testimony is this. Whose testimony? God's testimony. That God has given the life in the Son. The life is in the Son himself. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have Son of God does not have eternal life. That's an incredible statement. Truth claim number three. Now this is today's passage and we're going to dig into it a little deeper. Truth claim number three is this. Jesus will raise all the physically dead on the future day. Jesus will raise all the physically dead on the future day. On the present day, Jesus gives life to the spiritually dead, i.e. sinners. On the future day, Jesus will raise all the dead, physically dead, on the future day. In verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in, in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Pay attention to the voice of the Son of God. The dead will, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, I wonder what that is. And if you look to other passages, and typically 1 Thessalonians 4.16 comes to my mind. For the Lord himself, Jesus himself, will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel, archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So this cry of command is actually the voice of the Son of God. Do you see the implication of it? When Jesus was healing the paralytic, his voice, simple words, get up and take up your bed and walk. Those words 
were as powerful as the word, let there be light as a creator. The voice that created heavens and earth, that cried of command, will come on the future day, someday, all the physically dead, dead will respond without an exception and they will come alive from the dead with a new body on them. And at this point, it was a shocking point. First Corinthians, First uh, Thessalonians 4.16, First uh, Corinthians 15, all those passages about the resurrection of the believers. Even in this passage, the dead in Christ will rise first. But in John chapter 5, verse 25 to 26, is actually not only the believer's resurrection, but unbeliever's resurrection. All the physically dead. You could think about any person, historical figure, will be raised. Of course, the only distinction is the believers will have a new glorified body that we will be amazed with each other as if we're going to be mistaken as we're seeing God in front of us. That immortal uh, immortal body, that body that is done away with sin, that glorified his body is there. The body that was given back to the unbelievers is for the judgment, for eternity. This is the harshest thing you ever hear. For the judgment, everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God. Someday, this will happen. So think about this, the truth by Jesus' exclusive claim that Jesus has actually power and authority to bring back all the dead someday. And each one of us, including all those non-believers, people who deny Jesus, people who cuss at Jesus, people who live indifferently from Jesus, will stand at the judgment seat of God. This is radical truth claim of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now, our caricature picture of Jesus is disappearing. The words like a fear, awesome, trembling should come. Let that sink in our hearts a little bit. For those believers in this room, this terrifying news for some is actually our hope. John 11, verse 25 to 26, Jesus said to Martha, 
Mary's sister, Nazareth's sister, who died. And he, we will see the more marvelous things that Jesus mentioned this chapter in chapter 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? If you look at 25, verse 25 of today's text, this is what Jesus said. An hour is coming and is now here. So theologians typically call this already, but not yet. The kingdom of God has already come. The, the time for resurrection has already come. Why? The voice of Jesus, voice of the Son of God, who created heavens and earth, who could command the dead to come alive, has already arrived here. But on some day, in the future day, Jesus will raise all the dead, but in the meantime, Jesus can give new life to sinners like you and me, the spiritually dead. Already, but not yet. The consummation of full resurrection, the resurrected life, that we will have such a joy. There will be no more tears, no more dying there, no more suffering there. And we shall be like him. And that leads to truth number four. Jesus will judge all the people on the final day. Verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Revelation 20, verse 11 through 20, at 11 through 12, depicts what Jesus is saying in this chapter. Listen. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, Jesus, from his presence earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. Wow. Let me read one other passage of the future day. The day of the Lord that the Old Testament talks about. An actual final day. 
Revelation 17, verse 13 through 5. These are of one mind, the, the, the spiritual enemies. And they had handed over their power to the authority to the beast, to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, Jesus, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. I think what I was just saying past few minutes was not only offensive to the, the religious Jews and Pharisees who were caught up with the wrong things of men's tradition of how to vi- not to violate so that they are married and self-righteousness can go up. It, it is offensive to them, which is no wonder they want to kill Jesus. But what I'm about to just, what I've been just explaining, expounding past 10, 15 minutes it's so offensive today's world, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, one of the best benefits of studying the Gospel of John is getting this fuller picture of who Jesus is rather than reading into what we want little Jesus, put it in the box and take him out and kiss him and put him back again. On that final day, everyone, your neighbor, the nation's leaders, including Hitler, Michael Jackson, your favorite singer, rock stars, movie stars, the nameless people who serve faithfully for the word, for the glory of Jesus, the believers all around the world, in China, in Brazil, in Indonesia, in North Korea, they will stand before God. And I know some of you uh, who's been taught right way have the objection right, right now. Wait a minute. Those who have done good to the resurrection of the life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, isn't that salvation by works? It almost sounds like it. But to, in, in very kind of simple principle that we ought to continually practice when studying the Bible is that when you look at the passage, you need to look at the context of that. And then the context doesn't provide enough information. You look at the whole chapter, whole chapter to whole book. Let me give you a few things. John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him 
should not perish, have eternal life, everlasting life. John 5, 24, we just, we just meditate on that. Whoever believes in him, Christ, and him who sent, will be given eternal life and has passed, passed from death to life. Faith and grace, by grace alone, through faith alone. It's so clear. John 15, 5. This is a little different passage. And Jesus is saying, I am the vine, and you are the branches. You can do nothing. Not a little bit. Not some of it. Nothing apart from me. In other words, John himself expounded on that so clearly that on our own merit, we can't do anything that righteous, that is good enough. But in the sight of God, his perfect holiness, then what does this mean? And I think this is not only encouraging, but it's very challenging for our generation Christians. Because cheap grace is everywhere. What is this saying is basically our deeds are proof of our saving faith. The fruit, natural fruit of a real faith or real salvation, we, we will show good deeds. And those who have not will continue to live on the path of and the question that comes to our mind it, it is threatening and, and terrifying is this. Is your faith real? Does your faith bear fruit of good deeds? If that is offensive, I'm going to ask for myself. Is my faith real? Is Paul Kim's faith bearing good deeds? Our repentance, transformation, we continually fall back to sin and temptation. Yes, that's called a progressive, a progressive sanctification. We're progressively being sanctified, being, becoming holier, becoming more like Christ. But it is important that we need to bear fruit if we belong to Jesus. May I encourage you to examine your heart? At the heart of our sin is self. Self-centeredness, self-obsession, self-absorption, self-interest, all those things are the beginning point. And it often comes out as self-importance and self-pride, stubbornness, and etc. And it is fearful. I'm speaking, preaching to myself that Jesus, the judge, will look at my book how I lived my life. And in that book, 
The blood of Jesus has erased everything that I've done wrong. Yours too. If our faith is real, if our faith is saving faith, but there is a delusional faith, the thinking that we, are, we have salvation, thinking that we, our faith is true. Because what cheap grace made this generation is that it is okay to live your life the way you want because God is gracious, God is gentle, God is forgiving. In the end, it doesn't matter how you live. No, brothers and sisters, Christ mentioned over and over, John mentioned over and over, Apostle Paul the Apostle mentioned over and over, work out your salvation with trembling. Yes, it is God who works in our lives. On that judgment seat of Jesus Christ, which side will you stand? And if you're going to make that decision then, it's too late. The decision that you're making today will determine which side you will stand. Whether the resurrection to life, eternal life, or resurrection to judgment. The past summer, um, I had ple- pleasure to take my second son Silas uh, to a stage performance monologue of C.S. Lewis and uh, Max McLean. Uh, who is actually audio Bible, if, if you go to Gateway, the very deep voice. And I love that voice. That whenever I read Old Testament, I can't pronounce all these names. He just reads it so fluently for me. So that's the best way of reading Bible these days. He was doing, dressed up as C.S. Lewis, and the year was 1950, and he's sharing about his journey. But all those words came out of his books, except some few traditional words. So my son Silas, he's an intellectually bent boy, and he's in college freshman now, and he found the book very challenging and intriguing. But in that, it's God's grace, I as we're hearing, we were noticing the verbatim words for mere Christianity. So he and I looked at each other. Whoa! That's what we did. And the practical conclusion of C.S. Lewis, once he was an agnostic, he wrote these words. And it's in mere Christianity. I want to conclude with that. Oh, I wish you, I, you guys can see this. I will post it. I mean, our team will post it on our uh, sermon website. 
our church website. But make sure you read this again. C.S. Lewis writes, God will invade. But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens, it is the end of the world. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. God is doing, going to invade, all right. But what is the good of saying you're on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we rediscover which side we really have chosen, whether we realize it before or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. <coughs> These four truth claims of Jesus is exclusive true claim, truth claim. Will you embrace it? Will you kneel down before him? Say, my Lord and my God. So doing, you choose the side. Or will you indirectly push him away or cuss at him? Have you chosen which side to stand? And in terms of the fruit of our salvation, have you keep on choosing so that you and I bear fruit that glorifies the Lord as a fruit, not the pre prerequisite or requirement for salvation, but the fruit of salvation. May the Holy Spirit have these words linger on your hearts all throughout the day, all throughout this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. Unless you reveal that truth, unless you open the eyes of our heart 
to see the glory in Jesus, glory of Christ in the gospel, we would not have believed. But you have given us the grace that we need. And by grace alone, and in our, through faith alone, in Christ alone, yes, we have been saved. I pray for the brothers and sisters who are not sure. We know that it's not merit. But the confusion comes from the devil, the evil one. The cheap grace it murders the, the gospel of Christ as well as the legalism and judgmentalism. We pray for this life that you will revive of our church into the new joy of life, that you will continually, progressively transform us to Christ-likeness. So forgive us our sins and forgive our attitude to take your salvation for granted. that may we serve the real Jesus in a humble, in a holy way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs>